as part of the polis, we are people in the city who are expected to be salt and light to the world. And part of the way that that salt and light is disseminated is through the, the political and legal convictions of a, of a society. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I am here today with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church in Hilton Head, South Carolina. How are you guys doing? Great. Yeah, good. Really well, Nick. So I ask this with some trepidation. Uh, do either of you identify clergy with plus signs in your correspondence? Do you, do you sign your letters with plus signs after your names? Do we have to, do we have to weigh in on this? <laughs> it's touchy, right? <laughs> I don't want to make anyone inadvertently mad again. It's so, uh, I, I see these emails and I wonder, and I, I personally never have, I don't have a particular problem with it. I did start to think about the practice of referring to clergy in emails and how the word reverend is an adjective and must therefore always have a the in front of it. And do we use father so-and-so or the reverend Mr. So-and-so? This well, is our, a minefield. Well, our resident Anglo-Catholic here, Matt, right. I'm sure has uh, double check marks um, yeah, yeah. before and after his name. <laughs> To, to signify digitally the ontological change that he has gone through, the Reverend Father, man, and becoming a becoming a third a third uh, species of human, i.e., <laughs> ontological change, right? Exactly. The, uh, That's right. the uh, I remember like when the first uh, I remember the first like it was back when they had the email server lists. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was this old Orthodox Episcopal server called uh, Whitehorse Tavern. Yeah, I was on that. I was on, on that. Remember that? Okay, so I never, I never said anything. I was, I was what we then now we call a, a lurker. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that was the first time I, I encountered the the little plus signs or you know after the after the and and, I, and the protocol is you put a plus sign after your name if you're a priest and if you're uh, if you're a bishop you put it before before the name if you're an archbishop you put it. You two, put two plus pluses yeah. for your name and like some people like for for primates they'll put like three pluses <laughs> so plus so plus yeah, yeah. yeah i don't know deacon do deacons get anything do they get a they get a day they just get like a half plus okay oh, right. a minus a minus a, minus. a smiley face I remember that I, I, we had we hosted our synod. We were all deacons once. We were all deacons. Yeah, that's once. right. So, um, that's we right. Still are, we all remain are, a deacon. You still are. That's deacon. right. I just wanted lest we offend any deacons. <laughs> you know, I yeah yeah right. The, the uh, my parish hosted our diocesan synod two or three times in a row, and one year we had some we had a lot of I mean, some African bishops coming and who were very, you know, for in some places in Africa, it's really the honorifics are really important, and um, and so. Uh, you know, my people had to go around calling their, these bishops, your Lord, yeah, my Lord, or my Lord, Grace. Your grace. Yeah, you remember sure. great, right, right. And they were just freaking out, you know, because this is like northeast, northeast United States, and they don't, they don't, they don't call anybody Lord except except for Jesus, if they remember that. Um, so, so and it can be, it can be out, of, it can be out of insane. I mean, after I remember, I told my secretary after that that she had to call me. <laughs> Well, I will. I will say that sometimes the emails Liza can, can get cumbersome when it's like yeah, Nick yeah. plus comma JD plus comma Matt plus, and it's just like 
You just wrote the email and then scattered a bunch of pluses across the page. I don't know. I, I, I have a hard time with all that. Um, I mean, almost just exclusively practically speaking, you know, right. um, cause I don't mind people calling me whatever, you know, yeah. if it's some reverend father, doctor, like some title, it's fine. I mean, I, but I don't get offended, um, you know, in email correspondence when it's not properly, um, sort of laid out, you know, um, I do. Some oh, of my parishioners first got upset when like, they all, they, they always, they called their, they've called the priest father, like for 200 years and on uh, no no for yeah, like, yeah. however so long they, so been, they right? Think. right so they think and then uh and then the evangelical people could be coming into coming into our church who we become anglicans you know call me that and it's like <laughs> yeah well it's, it's kind a, of jarring well, I've, had, I've had a discussion ever since um uh going to Christchurch because the tradition there was father you know father ted dupaul and that's fine and it's a it's a i understand the rationale behind it but i had um you know become accustomed to being called dr coke or reverend coke you know um just because you know i went to seven years of evil medical school and i needed um needed that to be that was a good reference i yeah. thought anyway uh, i dated myself with that at any rate um we're going through this right now here because they're always like what do you want to be called and i was like well you know i don't want to communicate that i'm sort of like fussy and and um you know too too caught up in all these things at the I same am time fussy and caught up i just don't want to communicate exactly <laughs> but, it, well, but at the same time i don't want like a three you know a three-year-old kids rocking up saying hey jd you know i just i don't know it grates on me so i i we've settled with um you know formal situations i can be called dr coke but obviously i will respond to jd and i'm more than happy to be informal as necessary but i do like I do like uh, I do like to be appropriateness of our tradition that allows for formality when necessary. Um, you know, and I was struck by this a couple of weeks ago because we went to another Anglican church the week before we um, started serving here, just because we were we were around one. And it's um, it's a wonderful church, a very faithful minister, but it's it's definitely on the other end of the formality spectrum, we should say. Um, you know, it was a very much, you know, like a praise band and screens and then a, a wonderful sermon, uh, but no, no discernible um, Anglican liturgy, you know, and that's fine. I mean, we have that breadth in our tradition, but it did strike me as Laz and I were leaving that we had come a long, long way from, you know, from college FCA, like praise band type stuff, because um, I really missed uh, the rhythms of the of the the what people would think was a fussiness, but I have now come to realize is actually a a comfort. Um, and so I think, and back to your question, Nick, whether it's written or not, I do think that there is a certain appropriateness to recognizing the the hierarchy uh, within our church. Um, sure. You know, and most of the people that I've met, um, even when in the context, uh, you know, like we have archbishops and. Um, bishops on the board of Trinity, for instance, you know, interacting with all sorts of people. And, you know, some people say your grace, some people say, you know, my Lord, some people say this, but then often forget too, or in various contexts, you know, it's appropriate in the, you know, let the meetings reflect that the, uh, his grace, you know, um, says this versus, you know, let's go have um, lunch and talk over. At you know. Fred's divot afterward. <laughs> Fred's divot is still there. Fred's divot is the sponsor of uh, <laughs> Fred's divot, Matt, for those of, for all of an Ambridge, Fred's divot, um, you know, is a, it's like the, uh, the bar and it's a wonderful life. You know, the one where Mr. Uh, Gowers was picked up, um, you know, it's just like a hole in the wall or a divot as you were. <laughs> but yeah. So anyway, interesting question there. Yeah, well, needed something for the witty banter. All right. 
But on to our topic. It's been a little while uh, since Trump and January 6th, but the Christian nationalism conversation hasn't really gone away. Indeed, it reappeared in force in the wake of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. See, the refrain went, the Christians just want to get into power to impose their morality on the rest of us. <laughs> it seems like one of the things that quickly gets assumed in this Christian nationalism conversation, and this is, of course, an idea that comes out of the critical theory movement, what gets assumed is that power is bad by definition. And some Christians have argued that political power should be shunned by followers of Jesus. But is that true? How else would we work for justice in the world? And wouldn't we say that presidential administrations on either side of the aisle, for instance, think that they're using their current political power for good? And we, all three of us, appreciated a recent article in World Opinions by Dustin Messer called Political Power Can Be Good Actually. So guys, what does the Bible actually say about power? And is it possible for Christians to wield political power for good? I mean, like everything that God has established, it can be used for good or for evil, depending on who has it. And God has established power. There, there, there can be no ifs, ands, or buts about that. He established human hierarchies um, from the very beginning. And, and he and he uses he he's used human hierarchies in in the in redemption history from uh, Abraham as patriarch to uh, King David to King, all, the, all the kings and of course Jesus who is who is our emperor and king and who will one day rule the world so so power is is something that God has has himself and he has distributed to his creatures in accordance with his with his will in the first Corinthians I mean not first, I'm sorry Romans 13 is very clear about that God God gives power to certain individuals certain people certain rulers so that they will do his will and so it's not I mean I, I remember the the Christian nationalism argument I mean I, and, and you don't just hear from secularists who are who are who are angry with the religious right? You hear it from people like Phil Vischer and people who are in the in the evangelical left, who are who are purportedly pro-life, who are purportedly anti-LGBTQ stuff, but they get really upset when when Christians who are to their right want to use political power to affect the end of certain things that are that are horrific like the murder of babies in the womb or or the the desecration of marriage that we have in the lgbtq movement uh and yet at the same time there's a lot of there's a lot of ironic uh there's a lot of ironic hypocrisy in that because i was reading a, a michael bird article this morning and i think jd mentioned it off air where michael bird was was dealing with the roe v way fallout um in the course of the article he says oh i'm pro-life except you know i'm totally i totally understand if you want to murder a baby whose father was a rapist that's totally fine and he gave some other exceptions but he said at the end close to the end of the article um he was saying well we'll see if pro-life people are really pro-life american pro-life americans are really pro-life americans if they support you know free health care for pregnant mothers and he just had right. he read it off a list a political political position, political of leftist ideological positions right that, 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 so so you you it's power is bad when it's exercised for causes that might be considered conservative but if you exercise power for the left then all of a sudden it's jesus you know, this is all jesusy stuff um so so it's, there's a lot of hypocrisy in the in the, in the power language 
Yeah, I think it's, I mean, power is, like you said before, Matt, like any good, it has a negative side when misused, you know, we said all the time, like if you are, um, you know, someone that's weak and being protected by someone with, you hope that they are more powerful than your, you know, the invaders or for lack of, you know, it's it's like the old adage, which I think I heard on Alistair Begg's sermon the other day, uh, they've got a great Christian radio station around here. At any rate, God doesn't uh, mind Christians having money. He minds money having Christians, you know, and mm-hmm. so it's the same, same idea with power, like, you know, power in the hands of, of a beneficent, um, kind, gentle Christian ruler um, is is a is a good thing. Now, of course, when we get into our particular political system, having no king, you know, having no um, absolute monarch, and having designated and delegated powers, we have um, you know this idea that that there's going to be. Um, sort of an idyllic state when um, the perfect person will adjudicate without any, uh, you know, with the clean, the, the cleanest of hands in the most, um, you know, obviously just way is just, I mean, it's, our system, and we've talked about, we began talking about this years ago, by design was taken into account for the fact that there would be no one person or even group of people that would somehow meet the criteria of, you know, we'll just let you decide for the rest of us because we know that you are wise, holy, justice, gentle, and good. You know, we, we don't, we, we acknowledge from the beginning that that any one branch of government and any one person within that branch to have accrued um, power is going to be in the old, you know, the adage, Lord Acton adage, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so that's what's been so disheartening about our discussions of our political discussions is not that power, particularly in American context, is um, is wielded, but that we actually have this, this as of yet, still um, never bettered system of differentiated power and an overlapping um, uh, checks and balances on power so that we we can prohibit and protect from you know somebody's um, you know misguided sense of, of helping and so this whole conversation amongst Christians about power and political power is is simply a reaction to um, the fact that uh, that there have been, people agitating and and lobbying for decades uh, towards a certain position and have finally, particularly with Roe versus Wade coming to a head, um, seen some victory, political victory um, in that area. And that has been, um, you know, cause of alarm across the, the more progressive side, because as you well know, and as we've experienced, um, like progressive mainline churches, like for instance, the Episcopal Church, have um, have dedicated political lobbying wings. I mean, there are there are lobbyists in the employ of uh, mainline churches who 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 politic. I mean, that's what they do. You know, they have social, they have uh, political statements about all sorts of things. That, I mean, and we've talked about before. Half of our diocesan conventions were nothing more than like a, a liberal CPAC or whatever, uh, whatever the flip side of that is. Uh, you know, it was like a discussion of climate change, of immigration of, of uh, well, all of the things that are on the ballot this November uh, were simply discussions of concern for a church. And I didn't have a problem with that. I disagreed with some of the positions, but I didn't think that a church should somehow be apolitical because as part of the polis, we are people in the city who are expected to be salt and light to the world. And part of the way that that salt and light is disseminated is through the, the political and legal convictions of a, of a society. I, and so, you know, the saddest thing about it is that our laws um, are somehow, from a Christian perspective, are somehow, in many people's minds, um, argued to be um, 
to not be in in line with what God has laid out as sort of the ideal way of life for a human being. You know, the Ten Commandments, for instance. You know, I mean that the the that that a Christian person can rightfully work within their context to not force their religion on people in belief, but can argue that we have been given uh, what is good by God, and we will work to establish those protections and those freedoms in legal system as best we can. Like, for instance, do not murder. You know, we will unabashedly say that this is a gift and a good from God that we will work in the political system to to enforce and uphold um, for the sake of the believer and the unbeliever. And that has been the Christian position on politics and power since the Bible, as far as I can tell. And, you know, this this current argument is has a lot more to do with with cultural, the cultural overlay of the embarrassment of the evangelical left of being associated with the evangelical right than it has to do with any actual political philosophy or theology of such. I, I, Dustin Messer, that our, our article we were talking about earlier, uh, mentioned that the two kingdoms, he didn't, I don't think he used that language, but he was, he was working with that idea of two kingdoms that, that you know, the church has a political role to play in the sense that when the state or the king or the governor or whatever isn't, isn't doing what it's obligated uh, under God's sovereignty to do, the church has a, has a prophetic role to say to the state, Hey, you know, you know, stop, stop murdering babies in the womb. Hey, you know, just respect the, 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 the institution of marriage that God, that God set up. But the secular authorities have their own, have, have to, to say, to say that there's a secular authority, doesn't mean that authority is not under God's rule. It is. So you want, you want a Christian mayor, you want a Christian uh, congressman, you want a Christian president who, who, who doesn't, try to make the state the church, but who does try, like you said, to to govern in light of and in keeping with the principles that God laid that's has right. laid down um, laid down in scripture. And that that's that is the responsibility of, of civil and secular government of any sort. Uh, whether it's democracy, monarchy, whatever it might be, that if you're a ruler, if you have a position of authority, um, that's your that's your responsibility, and the church is there to 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 convict you of sin when you when you when you don't do that. And in a, in a republic like ours, that's pretty important because in a monarchy, you say that that responsibility rests on the on the head of the king. He he better rule in accordance with God's law. In a republic, that that responsibility rests on every single citizen, so that your your vote is an exercise of kingship in a certain way, sense an exercise of rule and so if you if you if you're like if, you, if in your mind you're divorcing your vote or your political activity from your christianity you're acting wickedly don't don't do that you need to connect the two so uh so you, you vote for a pro, pro baby murder politician you are responsible for before god for that you have exercised your god appointed authority uh to promote murder so you should repent and you'll be forgiven, but this is sin. Same kind of, and that goes through the, the, across the across the board, wherever the issue is, you need to think through it as a Christian and vote accordingly. Let me get your reaction to what I think are some at least relatively common points of pushback. Matt, in the beginning, when you were talking about the powers that were instituted by God, you referenced um, the Israelite kings as one of them and Jesus's kingship over the world. How would you guys respond to somebody who says, well, it's certainly true that the Israelites had kings, but when they originally asked for a king, they were told no. And the Lord only, in fact, let them have a king over some kind of objection. 
And then Jesus, when he was presented with sort of when he got in front of worldly authority, he did not try to take over that worldly authority himself. He said that his kingdom indeed was not of this world. So why don't you guys um, react to those points of pushback? Two things there. First, I would say that the reason that there was no king at first in Israel was because Yahweh was king. The, the whole the whole point was there was well the point was not there wasn't a king and everyone was kind of moving in this egalitarian utopia the point was that Yahweh was king and so when when the people asked for a human king it was it was recognized as sinful because they were rejecting God as king and so God gave them what they wanted Saul who turned out not to be what they really wanted and then he then God appointed a king David who was the one God had had, had chosen. Jesus, yes, as as our king, both of, of, of the earth and of the heavens, was it's it's fascinating. He submitted to Pilate. Uh, he 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 recognized civil authority, um, which I think adds more argue more weight to the argument that God instituted power and and expects it power to be used justly. Um, you wouldn't have any power over me at all, Jesus says to. <laughs> to Pilate if it hadn't been given to you by God. And that it's not because Jesus was in any way abdicating his role as king that he submitted to the unjust judgment of Pilate and, and Caiaphas. It's because he had a he had a purpose and task given to him by his father, which is to die for the sins of die for our sins and and and, and ransom us from death and hell. Uh, but when he comes back, that's done, right? Yeah. <laughs> when, he, when he comes back, uh, there will then, be no sharing that throne. There'll be, yeah, he will be That's the right. potentate. He and 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 every, all all earthly powers and authorities will submit to him or be forced to. So, so the the end, the ultimate telos of of creation is the establishment of a of a supreme monarchy that lasts forever. That's right. Yeah, and I mean, people's made people. I'm thinking of N.T. Wright in this respect. Have made much of the the idea that uh, you know when he says, "My kingdom is not of this world," you know, um, that somehow that that is a clear differentiation between you know Christian political involvement and sort of a more pacifist or at least a quietist um, stance. And you know, I always point out very uh, poignantly that you know it's decidedly not of this world, but it is in this world. You know, and that, and that the kingdom of God, where the individual, and then by extension the the family, and then by extension the tribe and the nation and whatever, to the extent that they are ruled by Jesus as King, well, then the His kingdom does in fact pervade this world. And so, you know, I've I mentioned this all the time. And it's why I'm becoming more. Um, I was having a discussion with someone this morning, becoming more and more post millennial in my convictions. We don't have to talk about that. I don't, <laughs> and, I, and you don't have to pin me down. We probably said this every fourth or fifth episode. But we don't about, need to talk about that. <laughs> but think about, you know, like, for instance, uh, you know, Christians in who are who are missionary communities within decidedly pagan or non-Christian environments. But, but let's just, uh, you know, what they're expecting is that with each successive um, conversion, then all of a sudden, you know, um, sin will be atoned for and redemption will be tasted and sanctification will be uh, undergo underwent. And therefore, you will have reconciled families, you will have healed children, you will have, um, you know, laws being followed, lies being told less, you will have uh, work being done, not dishonestly, like, and down the line, which over time and in successive generations will, in fact, create a 
kingdom of God within the kingdom of this world. And that's what we have seen. And we're seeing the, um, you know, the, the erosion of whatever that, uh, you know, sadly, the legacy and the progeny, I mean, the um, patrimony that was established in the West is being, you know, swept away before our eyes. But that doesn't mean it's not happening in other places of the world. And, you know, if they have to come over 100 years from now and, um, you know, like rebuild what was the West, you know, like, uh, like Mad Max or, um, you know, missionaries from Africa come over to the, the wastelands that was the great, the great cities of America uh, and rebuild, it will be in expectation that they will bring what the kingdom of God in this world um, has and will continue to bring. And so, you know, I haven't given up on the West entirely, but I do, I am much more, in, um, I, I think Rod Dreher uh, was much more of a prophet than we even we who agreed with him five, six, seven years ago, even then really believed because um, I think that the experiences of some of the people who lived um, as these resilient communities within the um, atheistic regimes of the um, socialists during the early 20th century are instructive for us, you know, is that they were resolute, they were comprehensive in their sort of protection and their equipping, they were prayerful, they were, you know, relatively small, but on the end, when the wall fell, they were the ones ready to stand up and, and rebuild. I don't know if you've read um, Canical for Leibowitz, have you read this? It's a no. fascinating book. It was recommended to me, and I know a ton of people have read it, but it's a um, fiction book about uh, what sort of post uh, atomic destruction would look like. And it's really just an allegory. I mean, it kind of follows the exact same uh, historical pattern you would imagine, like what the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh centuries were like, you know, after the fall of Rome. And it's just fascinating to, to have someone have worked through what it might possibly be like for a praying monastic community that mm. kept the books, kept the, um, to rebuild civilization. And again, I don't want any of that to happen. I, I think it should go without saying, but, um, you know, if it does, you know, the, the Jews in exile, you know, after the temple was destroyed, I mean, what, what were they possibly thinking? I mean, thank God he said, the prophets to remind them of their, you know, their, their culpability in a certain sense in that destruction, but also his never ending love and provision for them, even in the midst of what seemed to be the end of the world, you know? And I think, um, I hope we don't live through that, but I'm preparing um, from a Christian perspective to to endure whatever the Lord has in store for this world, um, knowing that his kingdom that exists within his his body, the church will uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against that, um, even if the walls around us fall. It's also if all the ideologies that we know of that seek to to promote a kind of equality and i don't mean equality of being we're all equal as human beings but but an equality of hierarchy like just just to wipe away with all wipe away all hierarchy wipe away all patriarchy uh, just have an equity of outcome equality of outcome kind of thing where no one has more power than anyone else all of those of course hinge on hinge on someone having the power to make that happen and then to keep that to keep that equilibrium where it is. I mean, so, so the, so the, I'm reading a book on the French revolution called citizens <laughs> Africa, who wrote it, but, but like the, the, the French uh, slogan, equality, fraternity, liberty, liberty. fraternity. Yeah. yeah. Right. You, you can't, those, that, that, those are all in contradiction. If, 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 if by equality, you mean no one has more power than anyone else, you can't have Liberty because Liberty, <laughs> Liberty would require that human beings have the, the power and the possibility of 
of gaining more than someone else, having yeah. more authority, more money, more wealth than some than other people. So if and you're going to have equality as your as your as your as your theme, then you've got to have a power who's going to stamp out liberty in order to establish this kind of this kind of equality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think the French. I mean, sadly, the French Revolution is more instructive for us than than I ever thought. I would live to see, particularly in with respect to the the overthrow or the throwing off of the constraints of the church, you know, because if you saw if you do this, I just finished an audiobook on the French Revolution, too, because I was I don't know, I was that in Brave New World in 1984, just on repeat. It was like, am I reading history or art or um, but, you know, they threw away. They thought monogamy, you know, was oppressive. They thought, of course, the priests were all um um, you know, either executed or forced to conform. And interestingly enough, the priests that went underground, at least in the lecture series that I was listening to, um, uh, the the areas in France to this day, and this is from the professor, so I, I don't have any, um, I just have to believe her when she says this, that the priests did not sign the oath of conformity, which is essentially a, a you know, a abdication of their, of their vows before God, um, and went underground and sort of had the secret churches and basements and everything. She says to, to this day, those are the areas to the extent that there still are pockets of uh, religious affection in France that's, that exists to this day. And I thought that was very instructive for us, given all of the other ways that we were being asked implicitly or hopefully, or what imagine usually explicitly asked to essentially deny our Christian convictions for the sake of, you know, keeping whatever um, state sanctioned uh, freedoms we may have, um, that that should be instructive for us, um, that the the courage under fire, as it were, for the sake of the Lord has generational consequences. That being said, during the French Revolution, in service of all these things, we had, you know, monogamy was was uh, decried, children, you know, the, the, the burden of children uh, was seen to be oppressive to women. Um, you had Notre Dame Cathedral, you had the altar torn down and a statue to reason put up in the cathedral. You know, it's like, these are, these are like things of biblical proportion, like the, in the heart of the temple, Gideon, you know, go tear down the, the statue to Baal, you know, that they have erected in the center of the camp. You know, this is what, this is what happened. And so again, we're watching this around us, um, these appeals to a sort of de- quote unquote, Christianized uh, religion very quickly just becomes a theocracy of a pagan theocracy, you know? So it's like, uh, who was it? Plotinus, you know, man is the measure of all things. Um, so we're going to listen to our sort of what you think is good. And then we're going to turn that into the morality of the day. And then we're going to legislate along the lines of morality, which is always what laws follow and force you to bend your knee to this God as opposed to ours, um, as opposed to another. And, and this is where we are. You know, this is where we are, that if you question the 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 morality of the current pagan neo-pagan world we live in that talks about the plasticity of gender and and the you know the um lack of uh, boundaries with sexual boundaries and on down the list nancy well, then, pelosi just said that mother earth gets mad sometimes <laughs> <laughs> so that's i mean yeah that's um that's basically uh, sort of a, a fertility, an Art, Art, Artemisian fertility cult uh, statement just 2000 plus years later. And look at what happened when Paul dared to not only question the power of Artemis, but also convert people away from 
the worship of her. And, um, and, you know, he, he wasn't received very well, but one of them, one of those temples is still standing and the other one is just a ruin. And so that's what we have to say about that. (laughs) That's all I have to say about that. Um, I do think going forward, um, this conversation about quote unquote Christian nationalism, as many of our conversations have today, um, there's more heat than light as they say, but I do think it is at the very least exposed a real need uh, for Christians to think biblically, faithfully, and with some sophistication about Christian political involvement. Um, and, you know, we've seen it done poorly. We've seen it done well. Um, and I think I'm grateful for people who are, um, who are really trying to work through uh, what does a Christian, you know, in the public sphere and in, in the public square uh, look like, because it can't be the case as many want that somehow your Christian convictions will, will prohibit you from exercising them in, in your civic office, because what, then what, you know, will Christians be allowed to participate in? Like, can you be a Christian doctor and have convictions? Can you be a Christian lawyer? You know, can you be a Christian politician and what does that look like and how do we articulate that? I think is a worthy endeavor. And I'm grateful for the fact that people um, in light of all this discussion, like we mentioned Dustin Messer, but I know there's others out there um, who are pushing back on this kind of this ham fisted blanket rejection of any idea of there being a positive Christian political uh, party or statement. And I'm excited to continue to be a part of that thinking and that conversation in my own life along with them. I mean, you know, we have the, the Christian Democratic uh, Party in Germany, you know, for instance. I mean, the, 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 the Christian ideas and contributions to a political uh, discussion have been certainly in the West, <clears throat> not only welcomed, but formative. And so to deny that is to deny the um, all the good um, that the, the West has given to itself and the world. And it is essentially a, a rejection of our history, of, of the good that it has produced. And uh, you do so at your own peril. I mean, you know, I, I for one, am very grateful that embedded in the, um, the due process laws of our country, go, they go all the way back to the Old Testament, are protection for um, the rights of the accused, for instance, for the, in the, in the, um, understanding of the pleading the fifth um uh pleading taking the fifth is an understanding of the um confusion of the accused in the midst of of duress you know i mean you go down the line i mean read blackstone's commentary on the on the on the laws uh the common law of the church of england and you essentially are reading an old testament commentary you know and these were uh, assigned in law schools up until like a generation ago because to understand western legal jurisprudence is to understand to some degree god's revelation revelation of himself in and through uh, the Bible to the world. And so, again, reject that at your own peril. Right. I mean, at the same time, I think, and I'm speaking here as someone who's not a post-millennialist, I'm not sure where you are yet, uh, JD, <laughs> but at the, at the same time, I think the Christian exercising political power, and let's just say even at the, even at the smallest or the tiniest level at the, at the, at the ballot box, has to recognize that that no political system is going to is going to bring along bring about the kingdom of God. That we don't have that. We're ultimately, I would argue, you know, fighting a losing battle until Jesus comes back. We have to fight the long defeat, I guess, as Tolkien would say. We have to fight that. Uh, but but we, the, 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 I think, that one of the great flaws of the left, and when and what makes the left taken to leftist ideologies ideologies 
taken to their extreme so bloody is the expectation that they're going to bring about a kind of utopian world. I agree with that. And, and so, and so when they don't do it, then people have then heads have to roll. Right? Well, exactly. Because you, so, you are standing in the way of, of love, Matt. Right. And so, exactly. you know, you're exactly. going to have to, we're going to have exactly. to put you down. Sorry. Exactly. So, so I would, I would say that Christians have to recognize, you know, until the King comes, we are like, Minus Tirith surrounded, and we're we're losing battle. We have to fight the the best we can, um, but not expect that utopia will be the result. Um, that's only happening when Jesus comes back. Amen. Well, that sounds like an ending to me. <laughs> Thanks, as always, for listening to Stand Firm this week. If you'd like to keep the conversation going, please be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Oh,